the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Insectus Carpe Diem arrives. Mission Control dims the lights and gets it on. Bare snow salves the soul. Plus, part 30 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Heart Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Brad R. Torgerson, the author of debut novel The Chaplain's War. Brad has been around a while writing short stories, many of which appeared originally in Analog Science Fiction magazine. This year he was nominated for two Hugo Awards in various short story categories, and he's won the AnLab Reader's Choice Award as well. The Chaplain's War has a real Orson Scott Card, Ender's Game kind of feel to it to me. It's got lots of excitement, but also a lot of thought about belief and faith and what those might mean in a future where humans encounter an alien species, especially if that species is belligerent. And in The Chaplain's War, the Mantis are very belligerent. So that's coming up. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. First, here's the news. We have a couple of excellent items up for free on the Bain.com website. Our free fiction this month is a novella by Wynne Spencer. It's set in her Elf Home universe, and I think it's a really good one, about rescuing an outcast cross-clan elvish maiden when the rescuer is a tough-talking, no-nonsense society misfit herself. The story is called Bear Snow Falling on Fairy Wood. Also this month, the October free nonfiction is Inside Mission Control by Terry Burleson. Terry's written on space matters for us before. He was a mission control officer in Houston himself during the heyday of the space shuttle, and Terry describes what it's really like inside mission control at Johnson Space Flight Center when you're in the thick of things. It's an article with a lot of humor as well as excellent anecdotes and information. So check out the October free fiction and nonfiction, Bear Snow Falling on Fairywood and Inside Mission Control. It's on Bain.com now. I want to welcome Brad R. Torgerson to the podcast. Hi, Brad. Hello. Brad is the author of many short stories. He's a regular on the pages of Analog, science fiction magazine. His story, The Chaplain's Legacy, won the Analog magazine AnLab Reader's Choice Award, which is, uh, I believe, the award for the best short story of that year. And two of his stories were nominated for a Hugo Award this year. Many of Brad's stories are collected in two books, Lights in the Deep and Racers of the Night, and his debut novel, The Chaplain's War is now out at booksellers everywhere. Brad, you followed what is increasingly becoming an unusual path to becoming a novelist these days. It's the path I followed, by the way, back in the 90s. Uh, you started off in the science fiction magazines and honed your craft there. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, I suspect from reading your Facebook posts that you have always been a great lover of science fiction in all its forms. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I... Being a, a child of the late 70s and, and early 80s, I uh, definitely fell in love with Star Wars uh, the way everyone else in the world did. And so as a, as a really young kid, it was really uh, media. It was Star Wars and Star Trek and, uh, you know, some of the Japanese animation that was then available. There was a – I showed my wife this on YouTube the other day. There was I showed her the intro to the old Battle of the Planets uh, series, and we would got a chuckle out of that. And so that's really where the – the interest started with, you know, the original Lorne Green, Battlestar Galactica, and things like that. And uh, I was mostly, you know, in, in that zone through my childhood. But, of course, I started reading some of the Star Wars novelizations. This is like the Brian Daly novelizations from 82, 83. And uh, eventually started reading some of the Star Trek novelizations as well. 
And then when I was uh, uh, probably 14, 15, 16, I started picking up a, a few uh, uh, originals uh, by people like W. Michael Gear, and uh, really, you know, started to branch out. But the, the one that really did it for me and kind of put my feet on the path was, I remember in the back of the old Omni magazine, they used to run the, the book club ads, and I, I saw some stuff in there for Larry Niven. Well, at that time, and this is like 92, 1992 or thereabouts, I, I was still pretty much ignorant of uh, science fiction literature as a literature as a scene. So I uh, said, "Well, okay, Larry Niven." And then I went to the bookstore and saw the books and said, "Well, why not? I'm you know I'm curious. I'll 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 try somebody new." And it really blew my mind because you know Larry uh, did this amazing blend of hard science fiction, rigorous adherence, or at least a fairly rigorous adherence to you know known rules of physics and chemistry and so on and so forth, but he really told fascinating people stories, too, or at least I thought so. And it was while reading those and kind of having my mind blown, uh, at the same time I, I got picked up by a little local community radio station that was doing a, a science fiction radio serial called Searcher and Stallion, and the guy at the head of that was a guy named Scott Howard, and so Scott brought me on and said, hey, uh, you know, let's have you write some scripts, and so I'm writing these scripts. It's Pro bono. It's it's community radio. There's no money in it, but I'm having a ball and I'm reading Larry Niven and I'm thinking, gosh, how much harder would I have to work to actually do what Larry does? You know, write stories that are my own stories in my own universes and and get paid for it. Uh, and of course, uh, the rest just kind of followed on from there. Uh, lots and lots of short stories that didn't go anywhere, of course, because you got to practice your craft and go through your proverbial first million words. But that's really what kind of set my feet on the, tr quotes traditional break-in, in that, you know, I, I, having read Larry, I knew that he had come in with short stories and eventually did novels as well, and so I just thought, well, that's just how you do it. You cut your teeth in short stories, and then you move on to novels, and I didn't really realize until probably the middle of the last decade that that model had gone largely by the wayside. Lots and lots of people were breaking in with novels first and staying in novels strictly. And at that point, though, the die was kind of cast. I still love to do short science fiction. Uh, it's something I enjoy reading, um, especially Larry's stories and, and other authors who are also hard science fiction writers and uh, Mill SF and things. So uh, I just kind of kept on keeping on, and I'm glad I did because it's done really well for me. I think my short fiction has, has really uh, gotten me a lot of good attention and seems to have pleased readers quite a bit, especially in Analog, where I've got uh, the AnLab Award for this past year, and I've I've got one for a couple of years prior, and uh, it's a it's a thrill being able to be part of the fabric of that magazine in particular because it's got such a venerable history in the genre. It goes all the way back to Astounding Magazine, uh, you know, all the sure. way back to Heinlein and before. So to be able to be part of that uh, that uh, uh, that history is 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 to me is a is a thrill. I, so one of my fans uh, on Facebook pointed out. She said, "Did you know that you're on the list of?" Notable authors on the Wikipedia page for Analog Magazine, and I thought, oh, son of a gun, I am on the notable authors list. So uh, I've done well there, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, you're uh, also in the military as a reserve officer. You're a chief warrant officer in the U.S. Army Reserve. Did your experience in the military inform the creation of Harrison Bar of Harrison Barlow, who is um, our main character in the Chaplain's War? He starts off as a sort of POW in the in the Chaplain's War, and uh, also there's this big boot camp section that's that's really good. And the guy goes through boot camp scenario in Chaplain's War is done really well here, and it's done so frequently it's tough to to bring something cool to it. And I think you do. So um, how did how did your military experience uh, come get, get involved with your writing, or does it? Uh, yeah, it definitely influences it to a great degree. Uh... I, I sometimes describe myself as a tourist in the military. Uh, I am a reservist, so I, I keep my feet firmly planted in the civilian world, but uh, uh, I do get to go over and put on a uniform and, and uh, serve my country, which I'm very proud of. But it definitely influences the stories and the books. Um, it, it, it's interesting because I, I've gone back and read some of my military science fiction I wrote before I joined the, uh, the Army Reserve back in 2002, and it's a it's a pretty stark difference. Um, it was it was clear to me at that time uh, that I was I was pretty much cribbing from 
absorbed folklore about the military through movies and and other things without having any real direct experience. Uh, and, and the direct experience is what definitely fed into uh, Barlow as a as a kind of an everyman, as kind of a I think of him again as kind of a micros, dirty jobs kind of guy. He's just a guy, and he's like so many people who are in the military. He he just finds his way into this thing, not really as a part of a plan, but it's what his friends are doing. There's a war on, you know. He he just there's this inexorable pull that sucks him into into this life that he didn't really consider, and that's kind of what happened to me, frankly. So, uh, without getting all Gary Stu about it, I think. Uh, there's there's a bit of me in, in Harrison's experience. There's definitely a lot of what I saw and experienced and have experienced in various training environments, uh, not only going through basic combat training and, and AIT, advanced individual training, but also going through warrant officer candidate school. And, you know, the Army uh, definitely has 800 bazillion schools to send you through. So there's uh, what they used to call PLDC, Primary Leadership Development Course, and then they'd send you this thing called BNOC, and then there's I mean and warrant officer school and blah, blah, blah. So all of these training environments influenced how I wrote uh, the boot camp stuff for Chaplain's War. And the main thing I wanted to try to to, to do with that piece of the book, because it's interleaved with the, 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 the present-day plotting of the book, so it kind of time shifts back and mm-hmm. forth, is I really wanted to do what I couldn't do in the original short fiction, in the short story and in the novella that were in analog. I wanted to flesh... Barlow out and 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 show the the reader his history and and what helped form him as a person and and kind of uh, make him who he is uh, and and show how that that person was created and because a lot of it really did come from his uh, experience going through training and then you know uh, finding re- really again not without any kind of specific plan just finding his way into being a chaplain's assistant and what that was all about and and uh, how he was routed there, so to speak, by, by people who just noticed who he was and what kind of quality person he was and said, here, I think this is where you should go. Because sometimes in the military, that's really how it goes down, is, uh, especially for the younger people, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, you don't have a plan. You just you go and you do this thing and you join up and you're suddenly you're in uniform and you're far away from home and you, you're it's exciting and it's nerve-wracking and you just don't know what you're going to do. And but if you have aptitude and if you have uh, skill or if you have – if there's something about you that kind of makes you stand out, sometimes you'll have people above you, a sergeant or, a, in my case uh, specifically, it was a chief warrant officer who said, hey, you know, you seem like a smart guy or you seem like somebody who has skills in these areas or maybe a talent or something. Let's take that and use it. And so they'll try to guide you into a specific career path, and that's kind of what happened to Barlow. Of course, the the – Overarching story is a is a is a is a much grander story, but I liked in the short fiction and in the book being able to tell all that through the eyes of a, a really an ordinary guy who's just trying to do the right thing. Um, and I think doing the uh, the the boot camp stuff helps uh, really give the reader a good idea of who that person is mm-hmm. and, and and help them to understand him as a as a as a basically decent good guy who's just trying to do the right thing. Yeah, there's um, the book is written as um, with some flashbacks to uh, to it's sort of two stories in one, and you see them both developing and sort of coalescing in our uh, in our climaxes and high points. But tell us about the development of the Chaplain's War universe. Um, obviously, it began as short stories because there's a the short stories with that title, I, I believe. Did you always have a novel in mind when you were writing these stories, um, or did it kind of coalesce as you were writing them that this might be a book? I definitely had no idea in 2010 when I wrote the very first story that it was going to be a book. At that time, uh, the the genesis of the original uh, story, The Chaplain's Assistant, which ran in, uh, I think it was the September 2011 issue of Analog, but I actually wrote it in 2010 as as a workshop assignment, um, uh, doing some workshops uh, with Christine Catherine Rush and Dean Wesley Smith out in Lincoln City. Well, the, the the assignment for the workshop was write a story for a theoretical anthology that was going to be titled A Planet Too Far. And it was kind of like, uh, you know, humans in space at the fringes of civilization living desperately in desperate straits. And I, I approached it like I have for several of these 
things where I've said, okay, well, how can I do a different spin on this uh, that, that might stand out a little bit? And um, one thing I'd always been fascinated with is the data they collected after the Vietnam War on the POWs uh, and, and survival rates and, and so on and so forth, because the thing they found, and this, is, this, this has been clinically documented, is that uh, POWs, American POWs from Vietnam, uh, who, who did better in, in captivity uh, were ones that tended to have some kind of religious faith. It didn't necessarily have to be the same thing, but some kind of spirituality, some kind of religious faith is something that, that they, they either discovered while they were in captivity or they took in with them that, that helped them mentally and emotionally uh, endure the ordeal uh, and come out of it better off than, than a lot of other prisoners. And so that idea had always intrigued me. And so when I'm looking at this assignment for this project, I thought, well, I could do a prisoner of war planet. So once I had that idea, I thought, well, now I need to construct a war to go with the prisoner of war planet. Well, what kind of war could I do? And I started dinking around with different things. And I, you know, there were, there were lots of different approaches that I could have taken. And the, the thing I thought is that, you know, I don't want to just tell a standard, you know, kind of Rambo uh, uh, POW escapes story. I, I wanted to do something that would maybe be a little more uh, a little more philosophical, and it occurred to me, I said, okay, well, what if you've got this POW planet, uh, you've got a few thousand prisoners on there, um, some of the people will be religious because, you know, if you take a sampling of Earth's population, you know, three out of five, four out of five people usually have some kind of, some religion, some spirituality, something like that in their background. So I thought, this is going to manifest in this POW environment, as it always does. And what if you had an alien researcher from the bad guys. He's himself not a bad guy, but he's from the aliens, and he's coming to this POW planet to research this thing that is completely and utterly alien to the aliens, which is the actual religious, spiritual, uh, uh, mystical quality of, of, of human belief, you know. And as, as much as that sounded like, oh, well, that's, that's almost too far out in left field, I thought, no, this is this is something different. This is something I can sink my teeth into. And so that's that was the setup, was POW Planet dealing with a, a an alien researcher come to research this one thing about humans that makes humans different from the aliens themselves uh, in such a radical way that the aliens are, are intrigued by it. And so that's what got the story done, and I sent that to Analog, and I was really nervous that you know, Analog wouldn't want it because this is the hard science fiction magazine. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've sent Stan Schmidt kind of a church story. <laughs> and uh, Stan surprised me. He said, no, I really like this. I want to run it. And so he, he published the story, and, and it got a really beautiful piece of uh, art by Beryl Bush. And uh, the, the, the reader response was really nice. Uh, it got me some nice mail, and I think it did fairly well on the, on the yearly poll. And, of course, uh, by that time in 2011, I'm thinking about doing a sequel because there were some things that were undone in the first story, and I had had really liked what I'd done with it and what I could do with the character some more. So I got cranking on ideas for a, a bigger story, which spawned The Chaplain's Legacy, which was the novella that ran in Analog in 2013. And the novella actually won the, the reader's poll for its category for the year, which I was really pleased about. And again, I to me, this was unusual because, again, it's a story... Again, it's kind of a church story because religion figures very heavily into it. But um, I, I tried to be very careful not to make it a a browbeat or a proselytizing thing. Uh, I, I wanted to look at the the, the deeper, uh, again, philosophical underpinnings of of you know what is religion for, especially in a high tech, post religious society, whether it's the aliens themselves or whether it's humans, you know, a, a couple hundred years in the future. And so I really got to explore that a lot more deeply in The Chaplain's Legacy. And, well, once I had those two stories put together, uh, that amounted to about 30,000 words, I thought, well, there's an even bigger story here that I could tell and really flesh out uh, the main character, uh, who at that point I'd, I'd really you know, kind of latched onto as somebody that I, I really wanted to tell his full story. So then I embarked upon building that into the actual novel, and, and and fleshing out the ending much more fully than I was able to in, in the short fiction and, again, give Barlow this this much deeper, richer uh, uh, fabric for his life and telling his story through training and, and life before training and so on and so forth. And 
uh, that was that was kind of the whole genesis of all of it. Uh, but no, <laughs> to answer the original question, I did not plan on doing a book. It was just something that evolved kind of organically over time as the stories just, you know, I kept telling the story and it just kept wanting to be told more and more and more. And I said, okay, I'm just going to keep telling it more and more and more. Yeah. Well, so the very first sentence, uh, a mantis walks in, one of our aliens, or or floats in, <clears throat> into Barlow's chapel on Purgatory, and he tells Barlow that he wants to, him to explain God to him. Uh, this mantis is the professor, and he's he's like, so far Barlow's been dealing with soldiers who've kept him uh, in prison. This guy's sort of a step up in the hierarchy. Um why does the? I mean, you've alluded to it, but perhaps we can go into more detail. Why the professor finds this question interesting? Well, I, I set it up in the universe such that the the, the mantis or the mantises uh, are, are a, an insectoid, uh, roughly human sized, maybe a little bigger, a little smaller. Um, I left that kind of up to the reader's imagination, but they're they're roughly equivalent to us in 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 that they're a, a biological creature, but they're they're very radically advanced. They've they've perfected some cyborg technology that has, has allowed them to be kind of integrated with their machinery. So, in comes this cyborg creature, and what he's fascinated with is the fact that in past eras of his race's uh, existence, uh, spreading through the stars and establishing their domain in the galaxy, uh, they've met. Uh, other intelligences before, um, and these intelligences have not been as advanced and haven't had the technology, uh, and they've been wiped out as a matter of course uh, because they're uh, they're uh, kind of treated like a nuisance, like oh man, they're competing for space and territory, and they're messy and violent anyway. We're going to get rid of them. Uh, but the professor, being an intellectual who, uh, you know, he's not a he's not a warrior, and he's he's not also a statesman. He's He's, he just gets curious, and he uh, decides that he wants to do more digging on this thing that has manifested in past species that they've wiped out. And he's thinking, oh, okay, that happened before my time. I couldn't control that, but here's an opportunity. We have a third species, humanity, that we've discovered, and you know, theoretically we, we might end up wiping out. I better go study humanity. And specifically, he's fascinated by, again, this the spirituality that humans seem to have, because the, the mantis aliens don't have it in any way, shape, or form. It is an utterly absurd idea to them, uh, being a, a highly sophisticated technological species that's you know been this way for a long, long time. And yet here are humans, and so he goes to the POW planet to do his research, um, because he knows from having seen reports of what's been established by the POWs in their little prison, uh, uh, area that there's churches and uh, people have set up makeshift chapels and you know there's 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 spiritual activity going on which again for him is an utterly alien thing but it's also utterly fascinating because it is so alien uh, as you know and again researchers being researchers once somebody gets curious about something sometimes they get obsessively curious and that's what I imagine for him is he's kind of almost obsessively curious about this totally alien concept that he's only ever read about in the archives of his species because they've wiped out the aliens they've met prior. But now here's a living example that he can go study and and uh, uh, try to find out about uh, in the flesh, so to speak. Yeah. And well, uh, so that's that's the root of the professor. That's kind of his story. Well, I don't want to get too metaphysical, but um, and this is a story, obviously, but it seems like an insect society might, I don't know, an extremely advanced society might need to be based on some sort of faith or um, or at least a belief system to get started. Um, why did the why do you sort of suppose in your in your story that the insects completely lack this or the mantis? Well, um, without giving away the book too much, um, I, I, I I planted the idea that the the mantis aliens, because they are so completely integrated with their technology, I mean, literally they're cyborgs, that this would, would cause them to have some blind spots. And because they've been integrated with their technology for such a, a, a long uh, period of time, that they will have become blind to the fact that they have some blind spots. Um, and when I say blind spots, I mean 
like experientially uh and i obviously this this to me is a, i'm riffing a little bit on modern day you know everyone's got their noses down in their iPhones and they're wandering around with their devices and you know we in our time have become very technologically yeah. dependent um, so we are the mantis fault and i try to think well, <laughs> kind of a little bit um or at least just watching how computer dependent we've become and everyone's got their noses in their again their tablets and their iPads and their phones and their computers and uh, I thought, well, what if you took it a few steps further and you had uh, a society that was literally integrated fully with its technology? So your your laptop or your pad or, you know, whatever gadgetry you have is physically a part of you. It, it feeds you data. It feeds you sensory information. And I thought, if, if we were that integrated, would that have a, a side effect? Because I'm a strong believer in the idea that every single piece of technology is always going to have unintended consequences. No matter how nifty it is, no matter how wonderful it is, there's always going to be an unintended consequence. So my thought for the mantis aliens was that even though they had started out like any other biological organism as being 100% biological, that their their long integration with their technology would would uh, kind of dull or deaden some of their, uh, their intrinsic... Uh, ability to actually manifest what we would describe as a, as faith or spirituality such that they they had forgotten about it completely it they had become so wholly dependent on their view as established through their cyborg sensory uh experience that 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 the the, the human spiritual experience which is a very uh, metaphysical very personal very emotional thing that has nothing to do with with outside data necessarily. It's it's often a uh, you know I would describe it as something that is purely internal. It's purely uh, uh, inductive. You know something like that would be would be so uh, so far removed from the aliens at this point. Uh, even though they might have at some point in their long distant past had something like that, they will have completely forgotten it. So that humans really are alien to them on on that plane. Uh, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the approach I took with it. I don't know if that answers the question really well well or not, but yeah. uh, uh, I didn't want to make it seem like it was impossible for the mantis. And I definitely played with that. If you if you read the book, you see that I I, I go directly to that question and address it in the form of the Queen Mother, uh, because at some point I you know I take the technology away and say, okay, what happens next? Uh, you know, doing the science fiction question, what happens next? I I definitely did that and and. And tried to do it. I definitely I tried to approach all of this from a standpoint of honesty. I didn't want to, I didn't want to club anybody over the head with a, an ideology per se. But I wanted to, what I felt was honestly explore some of the questions and 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 see how the characters would react uh, as time went on in the story. Yeah. Well, and Barlow uh, is maybe the wrong guy to ask about God and faith. Anyway, uh, he. He may be the chaplain on purgatory, but he's a, he's kind of an agnostic. He admits it to himself, at least. Um, yes. How did Barlow come to be considered the spiritual leader in this place? Well, I I set him up pretty much as an as a you know he's kind of the proverbial hero with lead feet. Um, he he didn't plan on any of this. He didn't really want to be any of this, but he was he was given this responsibility by his old boss. Uh, so when they're taken captive, his old boss, who is dying, pretty much says, okay, uh, you, you know, you're kind of my legacy. I would do this thing if I could, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be dying here soon, so you have to do it for me. And his old boss basically just told him, you need to build a chapel. You need to fulfill your mission as, the, as, as my assistant, and you need to build a place in this prison, in this dreadful, dry wasteland of a prison that we now call home. You need to build somewhere or something where people can come and they can actually sit in this building and they can maybe for a few minutes or even a few hours every day or whenever they want, you know, try to find something more meaningful than just being trapped here on this planet far from home. Uh, and he, you know, and again, from a military standpoint as a chaplain, you know, you have to, you have to be very uh, ecumenical about the whole approach. You have to assume that you're going to be supporting uh, many different people of many different faith backgrounds. And so Barlow sets about doing a chapel that's that's really a non-denominational chapel. It is just a place where people can come and maybe they can seek their own answers. And all he's going to do is take care of it. He's not going to preach. He's not going to 
do anything to try to, you know, pound the pulpit. There's not even going to be a pulpit. He's just going to sit it up and keep it nice and keep it clean, and uh, that, and that's the end of his mission. But yeah, I, I set him up as being somebody who, uh, again, being kind of the everyman, uh, didn't really come out of any particular faith tradition himself in his in his family life. Uh, he pretty much uh, uh, came into the war just because that's what his friends were doing and that's what everyone else was doing at his age. He had no intention of uh, of, uh, of committing to do this thing that he ends up doing on, on the planet. Uh, but once he does it, he realizes the value of it, and he realizes that his, his old boss was right, that people would need this thing. Now, he's not the only one per se, but uh, he's kind of the one that, that works best for the, the point of the story because when the professor, the mantis, comes to the to the prison, um, he he's turned away by a lot of the other uh, uh, ad hoc religious leaders that have kind of sprung up among the prisoners uh, because of various reasons. But he comes to Barlow's chapel and discovers that it's this open-ended deal, and he can come in and he can talk to Barlow about anything he wants, and Barlow will try to you know give him whatever information he's able to give. But Barlow himself is is kind of a doubter because he's almost seen too much of it. He's seen. Uh, a little bit of all the different faiths because of his training and because after they're all captured, you know, he gets to talk to the other prisoners. And, uh, you know, he, for him, it's kind of like, well, I, I see a little bit of everything. And because I see a little bit of everything, I I feel like I see all the problems, too. And so he doesn't he doesn't feel like he has any uh, any reason to commit to any particular thing. He just kind of stays on the fence and and he doesn't disbelieve per se, but he definitely doesn't believe either. He just knows that this is a, a thing he has to do because it helps people, and because he didn't, you know, he he was charged by his old boss to maintain this chapel and keep it open and keep it clean and make sure people can come in and feel welcome and feel like they can find their own answers, so to speak, as opposed to him being a, a again a pulpit pounder who provides the answers for them. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get away from uh, squishy fate things for a second and talk about uh, firepower. <laughs> At what what's the military situation now? Is Earth uh, on the brink of, of getting it? Um, where are we? And and do those uh, you we you alluded to the fact that they're cybernetically enhanced the Mantis, um, and they pack some rather powerful weapons on their little sledges or their big sledges. Tell us about the. Tell us about the strategic and just the uh, the general situation humanity finds itself in. Well, I I postulated uh, about 150 years in the future, um, humanity finally kind of getting off its duff uh, and and doing some serious space exploration. Um, my only uh, kind of cheat on the hard science fiction side was I did. Uh, postulate a, a faster-than-light drive that that would be discovered, um, you know, sometime in the in the in the year twenty, you know, shortly after the you know 22nd century began, and that this would this would kind of break the dam open, and we'd get out there and start settling planets and and getting colonies established because you know uh, I I think just speaking from a, a, a modern standpoint, you know, we've been sending our robots to Mars and to Jupiter and to other planets for a long time. Those places have have become somewhat ordinary uh, to people, but if we could somehow actually journey to other solar systems and do it in a relatively quick fashion, you know that might get people excited enough that they would actually put some money and some some hardware into it. So, so I set it up so that you know humanity is engaged in you know settling these colonies, and there's maybe a dozen, perhaps as many as two dozen, very small uh, colonies established here and there wherever the the, the environment seems. Uh, able to support us, which of course means there's Earth-like worlds. There's many, many... My, my kind of idea for this universe was that there would be lots of planets that would have the, the bare minimum baseline, meaning you'd have some algae or something in the in the oceans, you'd have enough uh, photosynthesis to, to turn the air uh, so it would be, be, be breathable, but maybe there wouldn't be as many planets that would actually have higher life forms. So there's a lot of these kind of barren but breathable air planets, but not very many higher life forms. So humanity's trying to latch onto these worlds and, and, and not terraform them per se, but you know, take Earth life and, and, and adapt it and grow it so that these planets can become more like Earth over time. So that's what's going on when, uh, unbeknownst to humans, the, the mantis aliens show up. 
and it's a it's a purely by accident encounter. Um, of course, the aliens uh, are much much older than we are in terms of technology. Uh, uh, you know, vastly more advanced in terms of their uh, territory they've they've been covering because they've been out exploring and settling for conceivably thousands of years, whereas humanity's only been doing it for a few decades by the time humans and aliens meet. So strategically, it's it's definitely humans are, are at a severe disadvantage in the universe because they, they don't have a very big footprint in the galaxy. The aliens have a huge footprint. There's a severe technological uh, curve that humans have got to try to climb to, to catch up to the mantis aliens. But, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm uh, I guess I'm a little bit classically Campbell- uh, you know, uh, uh, John Campbell in this way, and that I think humans are smart and we're crafty and we learn fast. So very soon after that first encounter, humans, of course, begin trying to uh, uh, reverse engineer as much of the technology as they can get their hands on. Um, at, at the time of the, the Chaplain's War, they haven't been able to reverse engineer everything, but they've 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 gotten enough uh, reverse engineered and adapted for human use that they can actually finally put up a, 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 a an actual resistance, whereas uh, in the initial phase, it's it's all one-sided. The mantis uh, threat is just going to steamroll humans into the ground, and that's going to be the end of it. Well, uh, it doesn't obviously work out that way in the in the course of the book, uh, because, again, humans are crafty and clever, and, and darn it, we're just not going to go away. Um, but it's a, it's a desperate fight, and it's it's one that uh, is, is underpinning the whole plot of the book, because Barlow realizes it's a desperate fight, and unlike some of his superiors who want the chance to, you know, kind of go, uh, uh, you know, glove to glove with the aliens one more time and try to prove that, ha-ha, we can do it, you know, he sees it as a numbers game. Uh, he realizes that, you know, the mantis aliens, there's just too many of them. They're too far ahead. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we won't be able to overwhelm them with numbers. Uh, so there's got to be something else we can do to try to, to not only win necessarily, because he's not even thinking about winning as much as he's thinking of there's There's got to be a way for us to pluck survival out of this situation. And he's found a way to do it that's, that's again, very out of left field because he's thinking about it in ways that a lot of his superiors might not be. You know, they're thinking about strategy and tactics and we need X number of ships and we're going to attack here and we're going to attack there. And he's thinking, no, 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 no. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, you, you guys have got it all wrong. However many times we attack or where we attack, isn't going to make a difference when the aliens have thousands of ships, and we might have maybe a few hundred at best. They've got thousands of planets, and we've got a few dozen at best. You know, how do we win when that is the when that is the imbalance of power? And that's kind of the question he has to face and wrestle with. Yeah, that that sort of um, hero who thinks outside of the box during a war um, has definite. The whole novel has definite definite similarities with the. Uh, I felt with Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game series, um, and this this idea that it isn't just firepower that wins a war or defends a planet, that there are other kinds of soldiers like Harrison Barlow, who are just as necessary, um, and could be the ones that make the ultimate difference. Was was Card an influence on you? I, I would definitely say uh, Card is a pretty a pretty heavy influence. I read. Uh, Ender's Game in 89, and this is, 89 is right about when I started to really branch away from uh, strictly reading Star Trek and Star Wars novelizations and, and reading original sci-fi. So uh, there were kind of three authors, uh, or actually I guess four authors that that I kind of all read together uh, over about a two-year period, and that was Scott Card, um, Chris Bunch and Alan Cole with their, their Sten series that they were doing. I had originally read them uh, when I read their Vietnam War novel, which was a Pulitzer nominee called A Reckoning for Kings, and that novel blew me away. I loved it. It was it was a terrific uh, Vietnam War novel. But then I discovered they, they did this Sten series, and so I was reading Sten, and I was reading W. Michael Gare and his... his uh, he, first it was a book called The Artifact, uh, and then he, he did his uh, Forbidden Borders uh, trilogy, which was definitely... Uh, space opera, military, science fiction. And, and of course, uh, I'm reading uh, Scott Card's uh, Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead. And, uh, you know, all of that really blended uh, together kind of in my brain, so to speak. And has it, all of those authors have influenced me at different times as I've gone on to write my own stories and my own books. Um, when I was working on The Chaplain's War, 
I realized just because they were going to be insect aliens that I was I was risking maybe doing things a little bit too similarly to uh, the, the way Card had set it up with the buggers, you know, the uh, uh, the the, uh, the the you know the aliens that he had set up in there. So I didn't want to mimic him in that regard, but I, I also knew that there, you know it's a war and the, and the aliens are overwhelming and and humanity is desperate. You know the the setup is similar, uh, but then again I also thought that you know this wasn't a problem because uh, a, a lot of the great alien invasion war stories and there's many of them in in books and film they usually come down to that same basic assumption that humanity's on the ropes. So it's going to be up to the plucky hero or heroine or heroes and heroines to 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 find another way to win. Either it's going to be superior strategy or some kind of trick of finding a a niche in the uh, a niche in the armor, a chink in the armor, so to speak. You know, like in the movie uh, uh, Independence Day. You know, they 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 found a way to put human computer viruses into the. Com- the alien network, and that brings down the shields, and then humans can go on the attack. And so I, I thought, well, I need to find a, an approach that will be I, so at least somewhat original. And I thought I came up with something that was really that hadn't been ever tried before, um, and that could be approached from a again a pretty philosophical standpoint, um, because I thought uh, really the end state of this war is is going to be two things: uh, either people are going to be wiped out, and we're going to be you know, gone, uh, or we're going to figure out a way to convince the aliens that our eradication is not necessary. And I thought, well, how do you convince this alien race that pretty much regards all other sentient life that it's come across as as a as a as a something to be stamped out? You know, vermin. You know, how do we convince them we're not just vermin? Uh, and so that's 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 a large part of what Barlow has to do through the course of the whole book and he does it in the original short fiction that appeared in analog as well he has to he has to get the aliens to buy into his whole idea that you know hey we're 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 life forms just like you and we have uh, equal value and we have equal right to space in this universe just like you do and how do you convince the aliens of that uh without just battering them back with guns and warships and and nukes and other things Although all of that comes into play, obviously, because in a war you're going to have, you know, uh, uh, ships uh, fighting with each other in space, and there's a lot of that in the book, and you're going to have ground troops and all these things that you can't get away from. But, you know, above and beyond that, uh, I, I forget who it was, but, uh, you know, there's the, there's the old saying about uh, warfare is just politics on another level or just an extension of politics. And so I thought, well, how, how do I approach this from a philosophical political uh point of view where the aliens can can be convinced of of the of the political futility or folly so to so to speak of of the war they're prosecuting against humanity well the book is the chaplain's war by brad r torgerson it's now at booksellers everywhere brad thank you very much for being with us i appreciate it thanks for uh having me and i hope people enjoy the book and now, here is part 30 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming. It's the 1930s in America, but this is an America that's been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. 
Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 30 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Your brother, Matthew, serves me now, the chairman said, walking between the deadly shrapnel to kneel beside Sullivan's only surviving blood. He relived this same moment with me as well, and he came to understand how our race has been mistreated. I showed him the way of the strong. Under my tutelage he has been born again, stronger than you can imagine, a champion of righteousness. Never again will he allow the weak to soil our world. He has become one of my finest iron guard. He has taken the name Maddy in honor of the fallen. Sullivan began to cry. Serve me, and I will help the Grim Noir's feeble magic successfully link to the power. You will soon join one brother or the other. Your decision. The battlefield was frozen in time. In real life, he'd gotten up from this trench, thrown Matty over his shoulder and carried him back to the lines. Then he'd gone back out and ended so many lives that he lost track. Fueled by rage, he'd reached parts of the power that other actives only dreamed of. He'd broken the wall between powers and had gone beyond being just a heavy. In a fever driven by blood and hate, he'd killed and killed until he began to not just feel the power, but to actually see it, until he could reach out and take it for himself. Sullivan looked up through the land of the dead one's dreams and saw the power itself a great glowing world that filled the center of the real world. It was divided into sections, each one a geometric shape, all of them linked together into a seamless whole. He could tell that the spell markings he'd seen were just representations of those geometric shapes. You can see it, the chairman said, following Sullivan's gaze upward from the battlefield. Fascinating. It has been so very long... I thought that I alone could behold its beauty. There was a faint line leading from the center of his chest where his own power connected to the great mass above. It linked directly to one point of a shape that Sullivan understood was where the power interacted with the laws of gravitation. He followed the shape to other sections, mass, density, velocity, until they formed one tip of a triangle, he rose from the mud, coated in his brother's blood, and knew. Thousands of other glowing connections linked the sum to the magic above, each line attaching a different active to a different geometric area of the power, until the thing draped down over the real world like a cloud of Spanish moss made of pure crackling energy. Sullivan could see the triangle he'd been born linked to. His line led to the gravity point, the next point pertained to the realms of electromagnetism, while the final point represented nuclear forces far beyond his comprehension. There were other shapes inside the triangles, hundreds of them, each tied inexorably to the fabric of reality, all of them working together in a tight, seamless mass. An artist's interpretation of all the laws of the universe, only this art wasn't imitating life. It was influencing it. Magnificent, isn't it? The chairman asked softly, standing at his side. Sullivan's link was stronger, brighter than almost all of the others at the sum, and it was then that he realized that it wasn't a one-way street. Energy wasn't just coming down from the power. It was also rising up in great clouds from the actives that died. As they lived, exercising its energy, the energy grew, and when they died... A greater sum returned to its source. More links descended to the world, touching others, creating more actives, increasing the cycle. It's eating. That's how it grows. It's alive, ain't it? The chairman nodded. Yes, it came here from somewhere else. He saw that the chairman's link was the brightest of all, and it played about choosing between several of the geometric patterns as he saw fit. I was the very first it chose, he said wistfully. It learned about humanity through me. Why is it here? 
the chairman smiled and held out his hand. Follow me, and I will show you, my child. It wants us to cleanse the world and make it pure. Sullivan returned to the power and knew that the chairman lied. The power wasn't good or evil. It wasn't God or Satan. It was a symbiotic parasite. It lived through them, and in return they got magic. You don't get it, he said. You actually believe what you're shoveling. Sullivan laughed in the face of the most powerful wizard in the world. It doesn't want anything, you idiot, you moron. You've killed millions for this. Then pain beyond anything he'd ever experienced tore through his ribs. He crashed into the mud next to his dead brother. A circle of fire ignited on his chest. This link was different, wrong, somehow misdirected, not to the power, but to something else entirely beyond what he could see. The grim noir trying to save his life had just failed. I am afraid you have died, the chairman said sadly. Hots stopped, Jane said. She put her gentle hand on the big man's brow. Her white bathing suit was stained with blood. Lance had blood up to his elbows. He and Browning were doing something to the big man's chest. It ain't working, Lance shouted. The hailing ain't taking. Faye was lying on her back, too weak to move. I'm sorry. I thought he was... Shut up, Imperium bitch, the man with glasses shouted, pointing a gun at her face. We'll deal with you in a second. Her first instinct was to travel, but something was burning on her forehead, and the magic inside her was all strange and fuzzy. Francis was looking down at her. I'm sorry, she whispered. I was trying to help. Hush, he said. His eyes were sad. She wished she could help. This was all her fault. It wasn't Maddie at all, though the big man looked exactly like him. Faye closed her eyes. If only she had a useful power, like Jane, she could do something, or if she were smart, like Lance or Mr. Browning. Instead, all she could do was travel. She'd never thought of it as a stupid thing before, but it was. She hadn't prayed since Grandpa had died. Please, God, don't let this man die because of me. I'm so sorry. It was a mistake. I was only trying to save my friends. She concentrated as hard as she could, just like she was about to travel, and she needed to check to make sure the space was clear so she didn't get killed by a bug lodged in her brain or something. Her mind spun, went ahead, and she saw the dead man and all her friends from above, but it wasn't clear. Something was wrong. Something angry and red was stuck to the man's chest, a bad piece of magic. Faye knew that she had to knock that bad magic out of the way so the good magic could work. She couldn't travel with her whole body, but she could use her brain. Sure, God. I figure I can do that. Thanks. Amen. Sullivan was fading away, turning into smoke on the wind exactly how the summoned died on earth. The red link was tearing him apart, it came from behind the power, from whatever mysterious place the power had fled from. You should have come with me, the chairman said as he leaned on the side of the trench. The mud didn't get on his suit. Think of what we could have learned together. He stopped, puzzled as a brilliant light erupted through the mud at Sullivan's side. Remarkable. It was the purest link to the power that he'd seen yet. While the chairman's was bigger and broader, this one was just simple and shot in a beam as straight as a Tesla cannon. It actually had an audible hum like a high-voltage wire. Excuse me, mister. Sorry about shooting you and stuff. Then the failed design on Sullivan's chest quit burning. The red link was severed. He gasped as his senses returned. I hope that helps. The chairman was nodding in appreciation at the display of raw strength. This has been a most interesting day. Unfortunately, your body is already dead. Come back with me, mister, please. 
Everybody's going to be real mad if I murder you two. Follow me home, please. Sullivan scanned the power. Time was short. There was his area of expertise, his triangle of gravitation. If he could follow that link, he could follow others. He reached out with his mind, searching the dreaming dead of the battlefield. The menders he'd carried Matty back to had been... There. Finding that clump of lines, he followed it up to a second shape. Their odd triangle connected primarily to laws concerning biology and two other unknown sides, and the healers landed near the middle. The two triangles superimposed into a sort of hexagram, and he memorized the shape. He found that purest line of power and grabbed hold. See you round, Chairman, Sullivan said. Farewell, Mr. Sullivan. I have enjoyed our most enlightening conversation. When we meet again, I will destroy you. He's gone, Jane pronounced. Browning slowly sank to the ground. The old man was totally spent from the effort. We did our best. Lance stood up with a pained grunt. He was covered in blood. Wasn't good enough. How? How can those Imperium bastards do this and not us? Faye closed her eyes. She knew that she'd been able to touch the big man with her brain, but she didn't know if he'd been able to follow her home. She hoped he had, because being a ghost here was sure to be a lot nicer than in that scary place with the mud and bodies and barbed wire and the big glowing jellyfish thing in the sky. She knew what jellyfish looked like because Grandpa had once shown her a picture of one because it was called the Portuguese Man of War and he'd thought that any animal named after the Portuguese had to be pretty neat. That scary place was probably hell and that's where she was going because she had just murdered somebody so she had probably better get used to that big jellyfish because she was going to spend the rest of eternity there. Delilah was crying her eyes out. This had to be the man she'd said she'd been close to. That made Faye feel extra sad because she didn't think Delilah had ever had very many people who loved her. The man who'd shot her came over, grabbed her roughly by the arm, and jerked her violently to her feet. He stuck his pistol hard into her face. Start talking, Shadow God. He was hurting her arm bad, but she knew she deserved it. Francis rose and grabbed the man with the goatee, but he just turned around and punched Francis right in the nose. Francis fell down, holding his face. It was an accident, Faye pleaded. What were you thinking, John? The man with glasses was shouting. Why do you save her instead of him? Jane, how? How could you? I did what I had to, the blonde stammered, then looked down at the big man's body, puzzled. Wait. No, you wait, damn it. The bespectacled man stopped and took a few steps back. The big man sat up and looked around, confused. Delilah shrieked. Great, you turned him into a zombie. Hang on, the big man grunted, looking down at the bloody mess on his chest. He held out his hand. Knife. Lance hesitated. Please. Lance hurried over and gave him the knife. The big man studied the mangled gashes for a second, then cut a new line. He thought about it for a second, then made one more adjustment, grimacing in pain the entire time as he cut. He studied his work and nodded. There, that's better. Then his eyes rolled back in his head, and he hit the ground like a sack of wet grain. That was part 30 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Statue of Liberty-sized bottle of anti-mantis insect spray and the slow hum of a thousand space monks chanting their monotone but heartfelt thanks to Brad R. Torgerson author of new science fiction novel, The Chaplain's War. 
Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Stars.